0: And get the guy up in the air back in the day when we didn't have amplification, I could see the benefit of that booming the voice out amongst the people. you know you think about Charles Spurgeon preaching to tens of thousands of people. he had to be elevated up in such a way where his voice would carry because they didn 't have electronics and microphones and those sorts of things. But as I looked at those pulpits and I saw those ten stairs, I thought my knees would be knocking somebody'd have to escort me up there. Uh, <laughs> I'm just climbing six inches here, and it's just the, the thought of coming to preach God's word is, uh, uh, it's very grave business to be in. And, uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm glad to be with you here. Let's in, uh, open up the word of God to Luke chapter 10, and it's been a couple of weeks since we've been here. We thank Tom Marshall for coming in and being our pitch hitter uh, and uh, filling in last week. Uh, I think we've we've used him twice or whatever, and I think both cases has been uh, Rachel had something going on. So if you're glad that Matt Gleason was gone, you can thank Rachel <laughs> later on. But uh, anyway, Luke chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 23 and 24 this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. Now you might be thinking to yourself, if you kind of looked ahead and you've read these two verses, you're probably thinking... Why on earth are we spending a Sunday on just these two verses? What in the world is here that we're going to listen to an entire sermon with just these two verses? And uh, to be honest with you, I think it's very easy for us to take the Word of God and just glance over it and not think deeply about it. Uh, Even as we're reading Christian books, many of you have heard me say this before, how we read Christian books and we come to the Word of God and we kind of just skip over it because we say to ourselves, yeah, I got that. You know what? I know that verse. I'm just going to glance over it and move on. But we don't really take time to savor the Word of God. We don't cherish it. We don't let it nourish our souls. And we're so easily appeased with these little soundbite theologies because of the busyness of our lives we 're not really willing to take the time to think deeply about the things of God as they are revealed in His word, because as I read these two verses this morning that we 're about to look at i, I didn 't get all the way through them i mean we 're going to cover them this week, but uh, I could have doubled the length of this today because there is so much more here uh, that i wasn 't able to get to, but I came up with a whole host of questions as I read these two verses, like Why is it here? Why did Luke feel inspired by the Holy Spirit to put this account right there? How does this fit into the overall plan of the redemption of God? Why was there this breakout of Trinitarian praise between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then this shift of attention to the disciples? Who are these prophets and kings that Jesus is talking about? And we will answer that one this morning. What does this verse mean? What does this say about the nature and character of God? Why are these disciples so blessed to see the things which they are seeing and experiencing? And and to be quite honest with you, that's probably just the tip of the iceberg of the number of questions that we could try to ask from these two verses. So let's get to it. I want to read our text this morning, starting in verse 23, and try to answer some of these questions. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to, for the reading of God's holy and errant, inspired word. Verse 23 says, turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see, and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear, and did not hear them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it nourishes our soul and is like honeycomb to our lips. Lord, let that be true throughout the week. Let us just indulge and be gluttons of your word, because your word is truth. Father, help us to learn more about you. Help us to walk with you more faithfully after hearing what we hear this day. And Lord, let us just honor you with our time here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If there's one thing that plagues humanity, as if there's not a a whole host of them, uh, but if there's one thing that we could look at and say that we as humans are consistent of It has to be that of ungratefulness. We're not grateful people, we're ungrateful people, we're not thankful. Uh, We can easily look to the Old Testament examples of Israel in Exodus chapter 14, when even before they had crossed the Red Sea, and in less than 48 hours after leaving Egypt, they complained to Moses in Exodus 14.11. And they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you took, you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They would complain and not give thanks to God for his deliverance. Even in just three more short days after watching the majestic power of God displayed before their very eyes in the parting of the Red Sea so that they crossed upon dry ground. And as the Egyptians pursued them through that Red Sea and God released the waters back to destroy the entire army of Pharaoh, Israel would once again complain in Exodus 15.23 about their lack of water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which that word, that name actually means bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. So the people complained about their lack of water and did not give thanks to God. In a few more short weeks, the people of Israel would complain once again to Moses in Exodus 16:2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So the people complained about their lack of food and did not give thanks to God. Then they would complain about the type of food later on in Numbers chapter 11. They would also complain about the inhabitants of the promised land in Numbers chapter 14. They complained about their leadership. They complained about everything, including grumbling and complaining against God. Constant, repeated, persistent ungratefulness to God. Ungratefulness is even one of the indictments made against unbelievers by Paul in Romans chapter 1 when he writes in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And here's the kicker, for even though that they knew God, they did not honor Him or as God, or they did not give thanks. They didn't have thankfulness to God for his provisions. They didn't have thankfulness to God for his mercies, his goodness, his patience, his power, acknowledging him as the source of everything, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so ingratitude is a damning sin that is right up there at the top of God's list, right beside not honoring him. As we get closer and closer to the coming of Christ, we're going to see this increase in ungratefulness. 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2 says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful and unholy. So it really shouldn't be a surprise to us to see this ungratefulness in humanity abounding more and more and escalating more and more in our lost and dying world. But how little are we as Christians thankful to God? How frequent is our sin of ingratitude? How shallow is our expressions of thankfulness to the one whom every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. How little and how hesitant are we to offer thanks to the Lord for His many blessings and provisions. Truth be told, we're more apt to be stressed out, or we just start complaining, or we're worried and fussing about this or that, how it didn't turn out the way that we thought it would. We murmur against God about the things that we have or the things that we don't have, and we end up not sounding that much different from the people of Israel as they were delivered from the hands of the Egyptians. But that is not how we as Christians are called to live. We are to be a people of thankfulness and continually expressing that gratitude towards God. Psalm 86.12 says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name forever. If you want the antithesis of Romans one twenty three, it's right there in Psalm 86.12. The, the unregenerate neither honor God nor give thanks, but we are called to give thanks And glorify His name forever. The Bible knows of no such creature as a thankless Christian. Psalm 97.12 says, Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to His holy name. Psalm 136.1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And over 45 times in the book of Psalms alone, we are told to give thanks to the Lord So this is something very, very important for you and I to apply. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 even goes so far to tell us that this is the will of God for you to be continually grateful in all things. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? This is one of them right here. Be grateful to him in all things. Not only is the will of God that we pray without ceasing, which is what 517 says just before that. We love that verse. We know that verse. We're familiar with it. But we are to continually give thanks to God in Christ Jesus in all things. It's a non-negotiable. But why is it that we should be grateful? What do we as Christians have that we can be grateful for? Well, we saw that over the last couple of weeks in Luke chapter 10 in our text, didn't we? Number one, we saw that we should be grateful that our names are recorded in heaven. We saw that in verses 17 through 20 with the 70 when they returned from their first short-term missionary trip. As they went out proclaiming the kingdom of God and they were healing the sick and they returned with this great success, they were rejoicing at the power of God that was displayed and demonstrated through them. They marveled at the wonderful works and signs that they were seeing in the casting out of demons and the healing of of the afflicted. And no, this was not a test uh, of fellowship for snake handling here in our text, but he was giving them power and authority over the serpent of old, and that would be the devil. But as they came back rejoicing at this power over the demons, he shifts their focus back to what it should be, the greater source of their joy. He turns their attention from the temporal things to the eternal things. He draws their mind from the earthly things to the heavenly things, and that is the fact that their names are recorded in heaven. As J.C. Ryle describes this interaction, he said this was drawing them away from the gifts and to the grace. He said, "He who has gifts without grace is dead in sins, however splendid his gifts may be. But he who has grace without gifts" is alive to God, however uneducated or ignorant he may be appearing before men. Let the religion which we aim to possess be a religion in which the grace of God is central. To be sure, participating and watching a sick person get healed would be an incredible miracle to witness. Casting out a demon would be an incredible sight to see. But the greater miracle is the fact that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are now belonging to the High King of Heaven, and He knows you by name. In other words, what He was telling His disciples back there, He saying, He goes, you know what, yeah, that was all cool, that, that sickness, casting out demon stuff, that's, man, that's pretty cool. But you don't want to know what's really cool is when the roll was called up yonder, y'all going to be there, <laughs> right? That, my friends is going to be cool. And beloved of God, sons and daughters of the King of Kings, for you and I, your salvation is a tremendous miracle for which you and I should be eternally and immensely and unendingly grateful When your world's collapsing and colliding, my kids have heard me say that, when things are so bad you don't know what in the world's going on, you have one thing you can always be thankful for as a believer, and that is your salvation. This fact right here ought to cause your heart to burst forth with praise and adoration and gratitude to God for his great mercy towards you. The second thing that we saw that we should be grateful for is that the triune God has sovereignly selected us for salvation, and it brought God perfect, all-satisfying pleasure to do so. We saw that in verses 21 to 22. The fact that God loved you first that he loved you from eternity past with the purest of loves, that he drew you to himself, and that he wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, and that he opened the eyes of your heart and no longer allowed you to be blinded by Satan, and he took your heart of stone and he gave you a heart of flesh, ought to drive you to immense, unbridled gratitude to God. All these things he did so in accordance to the counsel of his own will. It is by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus, as 1 Corinthians one thirty says. And if you don't think that it isn't by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus, and you think it is by your doing that you are in Christ Jesus, then I suppose you stand opposed to sacred scripture. You now have grounds for boasting, which Ephesians 2.9 contradicts. You must not really have been that bad of a sinner, as Romans 3.23 and Titus 3.3 opposes. You must have been just wiser and smarter than everyone else to figure out that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, which 1 Corinthians one twenty one clearly rejects. But truth be told, beloved of God, what a miracle your salvation truly is. It pleased God to save you. And and to think that the wrath of God that you and I deserved was laid squarely upon the shoulders of Christ Jesus on Calvary, and yet the righteousness of God, of Christ, is imputed to us so that one day we will be able to stand in the very presence of God. And he did that out of his own good pleasure. And for that reason alone, for that very reason, because of God's electing grace on our lives, because he had clothed you and I with garments of salvation and a robe of righteousness as Isaiah 61.10 describes it, we should respond in worship and be eternally grateful to him. So that brings us to our text in verse 23 this morning that says that he turned to his disciples privately And he said, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. Now, we're all pretty much vaguely familiar with the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5, or Luke chapter 6 as we've covered them, but they essentially say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth, and so on, and so on, and so on. And the word blessed there means that you are blissful, or happy, or fortunate. And Jesus was laying out for his disciples and us the true path of lasting joy and happiness, or blessedness. They were spiritual realities which should be present in the believer in this life. It was how he described true faith of a true convert to Christ. A true convert who is one that is not self-sufficient, but they are poor in spirit. A true convert is one who is not content in their sin, but they mourn. A true convert is one who is meek or gentle and doesn't let sin reign unbridled and out of control and so on and so on. So true joy is found on things which are eternal. True happiness is not found on this earth. Your greatest, all-consuming, all-satisfying pleasure will be found in God through Jesus Christ. But here he tells his disciples privately that they are blessed to possess the eyes which are seeing the things which they see. They are to be happy or blissful. They are to treasure and be happy for the eyes that they possess. Why? Because they have been given a great privilege, the greatest privilege in the world. And that is to live in such a time and to see and experience the great truth that the Messiah had indeed come and dwelled among them. The fullness of time as Galatians 4.4 4 describes it. And they get the opportunity to witness with their eyes and hear with their ears all that God had planned to do since from the beginning of the foundation of the world. The eschatological hope from Genesis 3.15 of that one who would come and bruise Satan on his head and had finally come in the flesh to deal the death blow to him and beat him with a stick. And these disciples got to see and experience and pluck the first fruits from it in their first missionary journey. That's why they could come back with joy in verse 17 and say to the Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Their eyes got to see it. Now think about seeing for a moment. What is necessary for sight to occur? Think about that. Well, first you need the eye itself, right? you got to have some eyes. you got to have the retina, the cornea, the optic nerve, the lens, the iris, the pupil, the virtuous humor, which is the fluid inside your eye. And there's a term in medical terminology. If you get poked in the eye and you lose that virtuous humor, it ain't funny because it ain't coming back. That's all you got, right? It's irreplaceable you've got the macula, the conjunctiva, the ciliary muscles, tear ducts, all those parts of your eyes which are necessary for you to have sight. The puncta holes, which are these holes in the corners of your eyes, and they're attached to pumps that remove the fluid from your eyes and drain into your nose. And so if you've ever had too much fluid and they pump into your nose, you start to get the sniffles, right? And if the pumps can't keep up, what happens? You have tears, right? You have tears start to drape down your face. And just thinking about and looking at this one part of your body, the human eye, and how that all works together ought to clearly demonstrate to you that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and not the product of some random time and matter and chance and some virgin birth of a big bang some time ago, right? God made the human eye and all of its necessary components for you and I so that we could see, and it's one of our most dependent senses that we have. But then you also have to have a brain and a body, right? You've got to be able to process that information that your eyes take in that are coming through your eyes. And and if you've ever seen an eyeball by itself, it's really kind of disgusting. So you've got to, it's kind of gross. You've got to have the body and the brain and all that to function. It's all got to be attached to in order to function. But then there's one more very important thing for you to have in order to see, and that's outside of yourself. There's one more thing that you need that you don't possess intrinsically, and that is light. You have to have light. Without light, you can see Nothing. If you've ever been down to Mammoth Cave and you've taken that hike down into the caverns in in Kentucky there, and they take you way down deep into that massive cavern, right? And they tell you, you better put your hand on something because we're going to turn out the lights, right? That way you don't lose your balance. And they say, let me show you how it looked when the guys first discovered it. And so they turn out the lights. And when they do, you wave your hand in front of your, your face and you can't see a thing. It's total, complete darkness. And it's not like your eyes got to adjust to the darkness because there's absolutely no light in there for you to be able to get get any sight. So it's complete black. You can wave your hand and, and there's nothing, right? So you have to have light to see. But here Jesus is telling his disciples that they are blessed to see the eyes of the things with which they see. And I think he's talking a little bit more than just the physical sight here. Because there are three things in Scripture. I want you to follow this with me. There's three things in Scripture that tell us that God is. Right? God is. They describe His nature. Number one is all that we're familiar with and we love. And that is that God is love. Right? First John 4 8 says God is love. It's part of His nature. It's not just that He is loving, although we would say that God is loving. Or it's just an action of God. But it is actually part of who he is. God's love is uninfluenced by anything outside himself. It's uncaused. It's eternal. It's spontaneous. There is nothing in the object of his love that motivated or attracted him to set his love upon it. It's part of his very essence, his very being. So God is love. The second thing scripture tells us is that God is spirit. Spirit. God is spirit. We think about John four twenty four. Not that he is a spirit, right? We don't want him to bring him down to that of other spirits, but that he is spirits. He has no tangible body, and it's not, he's not limited to space and time. He fills the heavens and the earth. He alone possesses omnipresence. Psalm 139 says, Where can you go from his spirit, and where can you flee from his presence? It's a rhetorical question. Nowhere. Because God is Spirit, but then the last one that we're told about in Scripture about the essence or nature of God is that He is Light. God is Light. First John one five says that God is Light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. In Genesis chapter one verse three, it is it says there that God said, "Let there be light." Like even the unbelievers know that verse, right? "Let there be light," by which He would begin to create the world. And reveal himself. In John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus Christ is the light of men. Verse 4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And that light was Jesus himself. John 9.5 says that I am the light of the world. And so the seeing that these disciples are able to do is not just true in the physical sense. They surely saw and they surely experienced all these dramatic healings and these, uh, these transformed lives from these eradicating of demons. I mean, we think about the Gerasene demoniac, right? After he left, he was in his right mind and he went to the villages to testify and praise the Lord. But they're beginning to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. That's why Jesus could say to the Father in exuberant praise and adoration back in verse 21, that it was pleasing to God to reveal these things to infants. The eyes of their heart have been opened and they're perceiving that this is more than just a Galilean carpenter. They're in the first stages of beginning to see and perceive that Jesus is the light and walk in such a way that they are no longer stumbling because they are seeing the light of the world, as John eleven nine 9 describes it. So they are blessed to see the things which they are seeing, both in the physical sense and the spiritual sense. And so he goes on in verse 24 and tells us a little bit more as to the reason why, when he says, For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and hear the things which you hear, and did not hear them. The reason why they are so blessed to see the things which they are seeing is because there is a whole host of men who wanted to see the things that they are seeing. Men who wanted to have the knowledge to see Christ, but never lived to see His day, and they are both men who were kings and prophets. But who are some of these prophets and kings? We think of men like King David when he said in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or to see the seed and his offspring who was promised by God to come through him from 2 Samuel 17. We think about the prophet Jeremiah who longed to see the righteous branch of David raised up in Jeremiah 23.5. We could cite men like Isaiah who prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7.14 and that he would be a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. We could think of Job in Job 19.25, that he knows that his Redeemer lives, and he longed to see him stand on the earth. We could think of Micah, who longed to see this child born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. They all had a forward-looking, eschatological hope for a Messiah or a Savior, but they never got to see it with their own eyes. This is why Jesus could say that of John the Baptist. In Luke 7, 28, that of all those born among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist, right? Because he actually got to see the light come into the world through Jesus Christ. Even in 1 Peter 1, 10, 11, Peter writes, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of this grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They looked through the scriptures to see as to the time when the Messiah Would come. Men longed to see the Messiah, but they did not get to see it. Men who were kings and holy prophets longed and looked and prayed to see their Savior, but they never got to, like these fishermen and these zealots and these tax collectors. And as a result, these disciples are more blessed than the prophets and kings of old because the faith that all of the Old Testament patriarchs possessed was now made sight in these disciples of Christ Jesus. But even though these disciples are more blessed than the kings and the prophets, we stand more blessed than those disciples do today. You might say, well, how so? How is that even possible? Because we have been given even greater privileges and a fuller revelation than they have. We have the complete New Testament, which tells the complete story of Jesus Christ and his redemptive purposes When Jesus Christ came into the world and we see his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, that unlocked a host of Old Testament prophecies for us. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit now. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have been freely justified by the blood of Christ. We have been adopted by God. And now we are sons and daughters of the King. We are now heirs and joint heirs With Jesus Christ, we have been given great privileges. Because although the prophets and the kings, they longed to see and know the Messiah, and although the disciples got a glimpse into the understanding of who Jesus Christ was, it wouldn't be until after the crucifixion that the shadow of the Old Testament would become the substance of the new. So, what does this tell us about the character of God? it tells us that He is abundantly faithful. His faithfulness reaches to the skies, as Psalm 36.5 tells us. What He says will come true. What He has promised, He will fulfill. And beloved, no one has ever trusted God in vain. No one. Because He is Faithful. How quickly do we forget that the God that we love and the God that we sing about and pray to is abundantly faithful? Even if it takes 430 years for God to take a nation down into the land of Egypt, but then deliver them by his mighty hand, God is faithful. Even if it takes 400 years from the last prophecy of Malachi until the arrival of Jesus Christ, God is still faithful. And even if it has been some 2,000 plus years and change since Jesus left this earth but has promised to return, God is still faithful. John 14, 18 says that I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Our God is a faithful God. We have a lot to be grateful for. We can be grateful that our names are recorded in heaven. We can be grateful that our sovereign Lord loves us with a pure electing love to redeem us. And we can be grateful for our Lord that he is exceedingly faithful beyond measure and that will one day return and take us to a place that he has prepared for us. Beloved, he has promised and he will upkeep his promises as he always has. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that there are times when our faith is shaken to the point that tears fill our eyes and blur our vision, when things that are surrounding us cause us to worry and to fret, and we confess that there are times when it seems like the enemy is triumphant, But God, we know that you sit upon your throne. We know by your word that you are faithful. The Lord who has declared the end from the beginning is abundantly faithful, Lord, and let us rest our hope on that. Let us take you at your word and remember that you are faithful. Many people let us down. Friends, family, leaders, But you do not let us down because you are faithful. Let us let that resonate in our hearts as we go from this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.